0: Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Dr. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and he's an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. Tonight, you'll hear a conversation about melanoma with Dr. Marcus Bosenberg. Dr. Bosenberg is Associate Professor of Dermatology and of Pathology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar.
1: So, Marcus, maybe we can start with melanoma in general. What is it? How deadly is it? Why should we care?
2: Well, melanoma is a form of skin cancer that uh, accounts for about 80% of all skin cancer-related deaths, so it's by far the most lethal form of skin cancer. And uh, the thing about melanoma is that if patients and and people are aware of what it looks like, they can catch it early, and that usually prevents the bad outcomes from melanoma. And melanomas uh, tend to be pigmented spots on the skin, so not all pigmented spots are bad. But there are four characteristics that uh, tend to make melanoma or a pigmented spot a little more worrying. So if the spot is asymmetric, so it doesn't look like it's uh, like a round circle, it's a little bit irregular. If the border looks more like the state of Maine than a circle, then that's also something that might be of concern. If there are more than two different colors, so brown, black, and less, that's something else that you could worry about. And then uh, if it's more than five millimeters or about a quarter of an inch you know, the end of a pencil head, um, that also is something that we look at. And perhaps the most important thing is if it's changing. So if the appearance of the the pigmented spot um, evolves or changes over uh, a month or two, then it's probably a good idea to go see your primary care doctor or a dermatologist to have them look at the spot.
1: So for our listeners, uh, just to reiterate, uh, Marcus, you went through what we have learned in medical school as the ABCDs, so asymmetry, border, color, and diameter, um, to try and give you a clue as to whether some pigmented lesion is just a freckle or whether something it's something to be really concerned about.
2: Absolutely, and and uh, sometimes if you keep your eye out, there are free screening uh, sessions for patients who may not go see their doctor for this purpose, where you can have any spot that you're thinking about um, evaluated to, 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 to see that. But I think also to add to the ABCDs that that concept of change tends to be very useful. And uh, many things don't change and perhaps aren't as worrying. And it's probably over a two to three month period that you'd look at it.
1: Okay. So when we think about melanoma, like most skin cancers, we think about sun exposure, fair-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, freckled people. Um, Is that kind of the norm, or can anybody get melanoma?
2: Well, it turns out that anyone can get melanoma, um, especially on the certain spots, like on the feet, it turns out that uh, people of all ethnicities or all, all, all skin types have about the same rate of skin, of melanoma on the feet. In fact, uh, Bob Marley, the uh, famous reggae artist, died of melanoma in, in his uh, 30s. Um, however, the other spots that melanoma happens is much, much more common in, in white people people. Uh, And uh, red hair is also a risk about threefold higher, so it's not a very high risk, but uh, for skin cancer in general and melanoma in in particular. But perhaps the greatest risk for melanoma is if you have more than 50 uh, pigmented spots on your skin. That's about a tenfold higher risk. And uh, it's hard to keep track of all those spots as well. So even uh, if one had to say red hair and less of those spots, it'd be less of a risk than having um, more than 50 spots. Now, if you have that many, most people who have that many still don't get melanoma. So you shouldn't panic. It's just probably a good idea to have a dermatologist or a primary care physician have have a look at, at you for that.
1: So if you uh, are, are uh, particularly if you're fair-skinned, but even otherwise, if you've got pigmented lesions, maybe going and seeing your doctor once a year, is that about what the recommendations are for a routine skin surveillance?
2: So it really depends on the person, but going in at all is usually a reasonable uh, thing to do just to get a baseline as to what, what is worrying. And, um, and then nowadays with uh, cell phones and, and, and the ability to take pictures, holding up a ruler Next to a spot and taking a picture of it is not a bad idea, so that you have that record and you can tell if it's changing. Because usually these things change so slowly that you wouldn't really notice it otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, but once a year uh, for a general and as part of a general physical exam would be uh, would be uh, certainly appropriate for a skin check.
1: So let's talk a little bit about prevention because you know we talk a lot on this show about treatment, and we're going to get into some really innovative treatments for melanoma, but. Before we even get there, let's try and prevent melanoma. So what can we do, um, aside from staying in a cave all day uh, without ever having any sun exposure, to prevent ourselves from getting melanoma?
2: So I was uh, trained as a skin pathologist, and we don't tend to have a lot of windows in our lab. So I'm sort of that cave dweller that you're talking about. And that's probably the best thing, although most people don't really want to do that. So one bit of advice is that uh, avoiding the hottest or most direct sun times of the day between 10 o'clock and two o'clock especially in the summertime is uh as much as one can is probably one of the safer things to do um using clothing that cover ups uh covers up skin uh like a hat for instance i don't have a whole lot of hair on my head which the viewers can't see but i always wear hats when i'm out um, because that's a spot that obviously gets a lot of sun exposure and um The uh, suntan lotions are very effective at blocking UV damage, um, but there are some controversies about suntan lotion in that people don't always apply it evenly across all of the spots that really need to be covered. For instance, the tops of ears or something like that is not something that one typically does, uh, and you don't really want to have visible suntan lotion, and most people don't. So it gives one the impression that you can stay out in the sun quite a bit longer than you might, but certain parts of your body that don't have full coverage might get two or three times the amount of sun that they would get otherwise. And uh, you know that's sometimes a concern. Now um, there are is clear evidence that on the head and neck, uh, especially of older individuals, that melanoma has a very clear relationship to sun exposure. Um, at the other sites of the body, and in younger individuals, there are many um, studies that suggest that having bad sunburns during childhood may play a role. But that's actually still pretty controversial. It's kind of hard to prove. But I think it's pretty unequivocal that the head and neck melanomas of older individuals really have a strong sun uh, sun exposure uh, component.
1: So let's just clarify for for the listeners: suntan lotion versus sunblock. There are suntan lotions that are just there to add pigment. Um, those don't necessarily provide protection like a sun block. So, should we be looking for SPF? And is there a certain number that we should be looking for? Is higher better or is it higher not better over a certain point? There's lots of controversy that we hear in the lay public about all of this.
2: Great question. So, uh, there are two main types of sun blocks or sun tan lotions one of which is a a chemically-based approach where those are the ones that tend to rub into the skin where you can't see the lotion anymore and have these sun protection factor, the SPF um, numbers between as low as 2 or 8 and as high as about 70 or so, meaning that you could stay out in the sun theoretically 70 times longer than you might without the lotion. And um, with that, though, uh, those actually work pretty well if you— measure how well they work by how much redness you get after a typical sun exposure they will really block that quite well again you might miss some spots and and have that issue the those basically work by getting into the skin and and uh, finding a way to chemically block the sunlight from getting further into the skin than than near the surface, but they're not really visible. The other main approach are um, these kinds that have usually a white sort of pasty appearance, like zinc oxide-based uh, uh, um, lotions or um, blocks, and those provide even higher protection than the suntan lotions uh, and are best to use in certain areas. For instance, like the tip of the nose, if you have an activity where you know you're going to be out in the sun and and uh, you might have the concerns about them washing off with water or something, something like that. Um, but, um, again, you just have to be comfortable that it might be visible. And if it's not visible for those sunblocks, it's probably not enough of it on to have an effect. And they work by reflecting the sun back away from your nose. That's why it looks white, um, Mm. on the surface.
1: So when we're buying sunblock, and I realize that the summer is pretty much over now, mm-hmm. but for next summer, um, should we be looking for things like a higher SPF? What is this thing called Paba, P-A-B-A? Um, when some sunscreens say it protects against UVA and UVB, does that make a difference over one or the other? Because there's a price differential of all of these sunscreens, and we want to be sure that we're getting value for our money if we're buying these to prevent ourselves from getting mel- melanoma.
2: In theory, most of the sunscreens that have a certain SPF and higher being better um, would provide about the same protection. That's what they're they're judged against. Uh, And most of the current sunscreens on the market protect against both UVA and UVB. It turns out that Uh, it's thought that most of the cancer-causing effects of UV are with UVB, so that's the most important one to block. There's uh, some suggestions that UVA may also play a role, but it's probably a bit less than UVB. Um, So Paba, the the chemical that you had uh, mentioned, was a a part of uh, suntan lotion in the past that now typically isn't included in suntan lotions. Uh, And some people have uh, allergies to certain suntan lotions and certain fragrances in suntan lotions and so forth. So uh, it's usually up to the individual or by what their preference is if they want something that smells like coconut or not, you know, but I think there's strong opinions on that and yeah. usually people are guided by that. But I think a dermatologist would generally recommend that the higher the SPF level would be um, the what you'd want to do and that you'd really want to make sure that when you apply it that you've applied enough and you've covered all the areas that are going to be exposed to sun.
1: So. You know, when you talked about sunblock, you talked about it being a chemical. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are really worried about chemicals that we're putting on our bodies, in our bodies. Are there any dangers to these sunblocks?
2: Well, it's hard to know because sometimes it might be a a very long time before one would see that. But as far as we know, with the current sunblocks and suntan lotions, uh, there isn't anything that people have been able to tell. Um, that there's and in fact the thought is that they're preventing a lot more bad things from happening by preventing the skin cancers and preventing the uv damage that 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 it goes along with uh, skin cancer um, the ultraviolet light damage Um, one of the things that people tend to miss though is for instance like the lower lip is not an area where one would put sunscreen but there are lip balms that actually have spf ratings as well and uh it's very common for older individuals that had a lot of sun exposure during their lifetime that they can actually have precancers on their lower lip because it gets a lot of sun exposure. So there's things that you wouldn't really think of when you're putting on lotion that probably are not a bad idea to also, um, you know, to to keep in mind that it's not just the skin surfaces. It's also things like the the non-hair-bearing parts of the lower lip that also get sun damaged.
1: So, and there is Clear evidence that sunscreens, sunblocks, do actually prevent melanoma. Is that right?
2: So, in uh, in studies uh, that are usually sometimes using um, uh, model systems, that you 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 can see that there is less UV damage, ultraviolet light damage, less damage to the DNA of the cells, and also. Um, less melanomas in those models. In people, it's harder to do that and harder to figure that out. One thing that we can look at in in people is there there are two other main types of skin cancer that happen um, uh, in in sun-exposed skin in particular. One is called basal cell carcinoma and the other one is called squamous cell carcinoma. And basal cell carcinoma is by far the most common cancer in people. Um, It's about a million cases per year in the U.S., and squamous cell carcinoma is about um, 300,000 or 400,000. In contrast, melanoma is only about 70,000. Those don't tend to be lethal, but they're very strongly associated with sun damage, so you can see a reduction in those cancers when you use suntan lotions, and that's a bit clearer. Um, So um, I think there is pretty good evidence that melanoma is UV-associated and that suntan lotion will help, but staying out of the sun is also a good idea.
1: Great. Well, we're going to take a medical minute um, and after the break, we're going to talk more about how we actually treat melanomas in the unfortunate incidents where we actually didn't prevent it to begin with. So please stay tuned to learn more information about melanoma with my guest, Dr. Marcus Bosenberg.
0: The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut alone this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve the management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in a more patient-specific treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar. I am joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Marcus Bosenberg. We're talking about melanoma. So for the, the last little bit, right before the segment and the break, we were talking about preventing melanoma, which is one of the most deadly forms of breast of skin cancer. Um But now let's switch gears a little bit, Marcus, and talk about how does this actually get treated? So let's suppose somebody maybe forgot to use sunblock on a particular area of unexposed skin, followed the ABCDs that you talked about uh, at the outset, and finds a lesion that is changing, goes to their dermatologist, presumably, has a biopsy, it comes back melanoma. Then what?
2: So Absolutely. So I'll uh, put my two cents in for, for what I do in this process. So I'm actually a skin pathologist. And what happens after someone sees the uh, dermatologist or primary care physician that performs a biopsy of a, a spot that they think needs to be evaluated, um, someone like myself will look at the, the tissue under the microscope and will determine whether or not uh, it, it is a melanoma. And we'll also add some information that tends to tell the doctors that will take care of the patient moving forward um, whether or not it's a high-risk melanoma and what the next steps uh, need to be for that patient. So most melanomas are fairly thin. Um, it's less than a millimeter in thickness or less than about an eighth of an inch is typical for uh, an early melanoma, and this is where catching them early is a, is a, is a big help. If it's thicker than that, what people t- typically do is um, there's some danger that even that small cancer, which might be just um, about a quarter inch or a half an inch across, has already spread to um, something called the lymph node. It's a, 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 it's sort of like the bloodstream, but it's not quite like that. And it might go, for instance, if you had one on your hand, it would go towards the armpit would be the first place one would expect to see it uh, go. And so what is done is that a surgeon then will map out where the cells should have gone, and will take out that lymph node. It will be evaluated by a pathologist, and they'll determine if there seem to be any melanoma cells in that lymph node. If it's positive for those cells, they'll take some more of the lymph nodes out to hopefully reduce any tumor that's spread to that early spot. For most patients at that point in time, they're free of disease, and they're just uh, going to a dermatologist usually every three months for the first couple of years and then maybe every six months and then every year uh, for the vast majority of patients that's their course they don't actually ever have uh, more advanced melanoma than that um, and they just see a dermatologist more regularly um, for some individuals so uh, it depends on how thick the original melanoma was and uh, they actually will have more advanced disease. So they might feel, for instance, uh, a lump growing in, in their armpit or in another location. or uh, And so then they'll have follow-up with uh, a doctor who will determine— if the melanoma has spread. So, uh, they'll do radiology exams. They might do, uh, 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 put, uh, put, a needle into the, um, the, the spot that seems to be growing to test to see if there's melanoma cells in it or do another biopsy of that. And then pathology will be involved to determine if it actually is melanoma. And at that point, um, Usually, the surgeons will have taken out all that they can of the of the the tissue, and then the patient will go to a, a medical oncologist to determine what the options are and that will usually be a discussion that they 'll have with medical oncology
1: so let 's go back a, a little bit mm-hmm. um, so it sounds like the thickness of the melanoma is really a critical feature in terms of determining how patients are treated. Are there other factors that also play a role, like maybe where it is on the body? You talked about uh, Bob Marley having it on his foot. Uh, Is that better or worse than somebody who has, say, a freckle on their face? Uh, Or does that make any difference at all?
2: Surprisingly, uh, the thickness really seems to work very, very well. And that really is the main thing. Nothing really has improved on the ability to predict how patients are going to do. Aside from one thing is whether or not the surface of the melanoma uh, is open or ulcerated, that tends to make the, the, the melanomas behave a little bit worse than they would otherwise. Um, n- and more recently, uh, we've learned a lot about the genetic changes that drive melanoma. So there was hope that Um, With that new information, we might have the ability to tell which patients will do really well and which ones won't. That hasn't really impacted care uh, yet in terms of predicting how patients are going to do based on those changes. There's still some possibility that it will eventually. It just hasn't happened yet. Um, But some of those genetic changes actually are tested for to determine whether or not a patient qualifies for certain types of therapy, because they only work in patients with certain changes.
1: So we're going to get back to that in a minute. But mm-hmm. just to clarify for the listeners as well, we're talking about the thickness of, of a melanoma, like how far down in the skin it goes. So you're really not talking about the surface area that you can see. So if you had a massive melanoma that was six centimeters in diameter, but it barely went through the skin, that might not be as bad as if you had a six millimeter uh, melanoma that went down through all of the layers of the skin. Is that right? That's
2: absolutely correct. And that's sort of surprising. And it's not really, you know, it doesn't seem to make sense that that's the case. But when you follow enough patients who've had those larger surface area melanomas, but that aren't very deep, um, then you notice that they don't really do, they do pretty well um, in terms of their survival and and not having recurrences. So, uh, and the thickness that we're talking about here, the range is from less than one millimeter, and the highest thickness that we uh, stop at is four millimeters, which is, you know, less than a quarter of an inch thick. So that's already considered thick for a melanoma. So Again, the idea of when there's something flat that's changing and not necessarily that's growing out, you'd really want to catch it when it's flatter rather than when it's growing out, and and because that uh, already has a, a a pretty noticeably worse um, effect on people's uh, survival.
1: Yeah, I think the the take-home message here is that, you know, it's really not what you can see on the surface. Mm. It's really how deep it is, which is only something that people like you in the pathology lab can tell. So if you see something that's changing, go and get it checked because you just don't know how thick it is until you have it under the microscope.
2: That's absolutely right. Sometimes they stick out from the surface a little bit, and that can be helpful if they're growing out uh, like that. And not all things that are sticking out from the surface and are pigmented are bad. In fact, the vast majority aren't. It's the ones that are changing and that stick out or are thicker that are are more worrisome.
1: Yeah, I tell all my patients that there's only two people who can tell you anything for sure, God and the pathologist. So uh, (laughs) if you don't know if something is changing and you don't know what it is, uh, you you need to get it checked out so that a pathologist can tell you. Um, Let's move on to to therapies. You talked a little bit about genetic changes and the fact that while this may not predict prognosis, it may actually have a role to play in what kind of treatment you're eligible for. So talk a little bit about different kinds of medical treatment. We talked a little bit about surgery, which seems fairly simple in the sense that you take out the melanoma and you check lymph nodes. But there's a lot of movement going on in the field in terms of how we can target certain pathways, certain things about melanomas or even other cancers um, that are really novel. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is really an exciting time in melanoma Uh, for a very long time, for almost about 40 years until about five years ago, there was no new therapy in melanoma that actually made patients live longer. So that was a very long time where you're kind of using things that maybe helped 5% of patients, uh, if that even, and not even for a very long time. And so uh, about a little over 10 years ago, some of the first genetics of melanoma was being worked out, and there was a gene that's called BRAF um, that was identified as being changed in about half of all melanoma. And uh, the nice thing about this particular uh, gene which makes a protein is that the, the, this protein, well, you could m- make drugs against it. And so uh, several companies moved pretty quickly and in almost record time in about seven or eight years went from the discovery of a gene involved in cancer to having an FDA-approved uh, drug for it, which is really about half the time that it might typically take. And part of the reason was that uh, when they got the drugs that worked on this particular gene or protein, um, it was so obvious that it was working, that it made the approval part uh, very, very um, easy. And and so patients that have um, this certain mutation in the BRAF gene Respond to the BRAF inhibitor. And so, um, and it was really uh, one of the triumphs in sort of modern um, medicine and trying to have this concept of personalized medicine where you have a patient's tumor evaluated on a more molecular level and then you have a drug that's really set up to target that particular genetic change. And between 50 and even more percent of patients that had that uh, drug would have their tumor stop growing and even shrink by more than 30% and would have what they call a disease-free survival advantage. So they wouldn't have their melanoma recur or progress for um, about a year, a little bit less than that. Um, One of the challenges with this therapy is that Uh, It tends to happen that patients eventually get resistant to the therapy and perhaps live on average about 12 to 18 months longer than they would have otherwise, but the vast majority of patients eventually do recur. Uh, So additional drugs were added in that pathway, and it works a little bit better than that now, but it's still a major problem in, in melanoma treatment for the BRAF and related inhibitors that resistance emerges in a large number of cases.
1: And so if resistance emerges, then what?
2: So um, that was uh, really a tough question about four or so years ago to address. During that time, um, and coincidentally really, another a set of therapies was being developed. And these were therapies that um, made the immune system work uh, more actively in people, and anyone who takes the therapies. And one of the discoveries was that if you make your immune system more active or remove the brakes on the immune system, that, uh, it's all of a sudden able to sometimes fight cancer, including melanoma. So melanoma was really at the forefront of the development of these immune-based therapies. And even about 10 or 12 years ago, there was one that was based on blocking a a gene called CTLA-4 and, uh... Five or ten percent of patients who had this blocking therapy to to this gene had dramatic responses. So it was clear that you could even see in some cases uh, large melanoma tumors sort of shrink away, and that the patients would live for five or ten years. So they're wow. out long enough, which is really pretty pretty spectacular. Um, it was still a, a minority, though; only about ten or fifteen percent seemed to have these long and durable responses. But what was nice about it was that there were patients that seemed to be cured or had really long survival based on a new therapy that was given. So so that was very, very exciting. And to some extent, based on the success and the concept of removing the brakes on the immune system, additional uh, genes were targeted, uh, including uh, something called pd one and something that interacts with PD1 called PDL1 and uh, several companies have made drugs to this to PD to block PD1 function making the immune system work better and uh, again before the clinical trial one couldn't really know how well this would work in people but it's pretty clear that probably now 30% or more of melanoma patients now have long-term survivals with just that one drug. And, and even from several different companies that are making a drug like that, they're all seeing very, very uh, good survival. And, and based on that now, several other cancer types are using this to treat uh, their patients, including lung cancer, prostate cancer, even in breast cancer or treatment resistance. There's lots of very good treatments for most breast cancer patients, but some um, need to have something else.
0: Dr. Marcus Bosenberg is associate professor of dermatology and of pathology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.